I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday. It is April 15th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in New York. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. We are not going to have any coronary events in the air today, but we are going to talk about succession. So if you have not seen episode three, spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead, but we got a lot in the issue, especially a really good story from Sam Kashner, right, Ashley? Yeah, we do. I mean, talk about prescient. Sam Kashner takes a long and lingering look at Frank E. Campbell, which is, wait for it, a funeral parlor on the Upper East Side on Madison Avenue. In fact, and it is a funeral parlor that also is going to be in the news because once again, if you have not seen Succession, stop listening now. Frankie Campbell ends up being the funeral home where Logan Roy is taken after he perishes famously in the latest episode of Succession. So we've got the whole story on that place, which trust me, you might think you don't want to know about, but you do. Yeah. When a man like Logan Roy dies, actually, where will his funeral be? It's a good bet. It will be at the funeral home to the stars and masters of the universe, Frank E. Campbell. Our writer, Sam Kashner, has the riveting history of this place, which has been the last stop for just about everyone from Jackie Onassis to Biggie Smalls. It's loaded with details, of which my favorite might be what went into pulling off the wake they held for Judy Garland in 1969. It's a great, great story. And think of it as something to get you ready for episode four. Meanwhile, we have a great show for you here today. Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor, will be here to tell us how a Sean Connery line from the 1987 movie The Untouchables might hold the key to how we make Putin pay for his behavior. Then, if you're wondering where to go this summer, Christine Mulkey has an idea that sounds like heaven to us. And finally, George Hahn, the well-dressed man behind Airmail's newest column, Design for Living, stops by to share his secrets on how to live a more stylish life. Also, Michael, I think the theme of the show is going to be Everything heavenly is hellish, starting with... Should we talk about Bill Cohan's story for just 15 seconds? Let's go there because, yeah, that's quite a story. Just when you think there's one safe extracurricular activity to engage in. No, Michael, you're wrong. It turns out if you play squash in Westchester, it too is a breeding ground for sexual harassment. Who knew? As Bill Cohan reports in this week's issue, there was recently a civil complaint filed by the former squash director of the Westchester Country Club in Rye, New York. Her name is Natalie Granger, and she alleged that the club, the chairman of its board, Mark Christiana, and its former chief operating officer, Tom Nevin, created what has been described by Bill as a hotbed of steamy affairs and sexual harassment between several of the club's rich and powerful male members and then the younger, less powerful female squash professionals. Fascinating stuff. As we might say, I'm shocked to find that there's some strange behavior happening with a waspy enclave in New York City. But it makes for compelling, fascinating, and terrific reporting by Bill this week. So I highly recommend you read that. All right, let's get the serious matters out of the way first. Putin, hell on earth. Alessandra Stanley, heaven on earth. Yeah, heaven on earth. And she's got a very smart, as always, idea this week about what's known as the Chicago way and how to get tough with someone. So it's a great story, right? Yeah, it's like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth on steroids. Welcome, Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor of Airmail. 
right. Well, Putin's a tricky fellow and nobody really knows how to deal with him, except the co-editor of Airmail, Alessandra Stanley, who has come up with a solution to one of the great problems of the world. Well, this is a desperation measure, but I just think you can't treat Putin like a norning person. You have to make him hurt, so to speak. And that's why we call it the Chicago way from the movie. Which movie? Sorry, The Untouchables. Sean Connery puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue. And with Putin, you have to hurt him. You have to take somebody that he really cares about or that matters to him. Because otherwise, this will go on forever. I mean, poor Paul Whelan has been a captive there for over four years. And I mean, Evan Grushkovich is, it's just unthinkable that he should be in prison. So I think you have to really be tough. What are you prepared to do, as Sean Connery said? <laughs> okay, let's go back a little bit. So Evan Gershkovich was the Wall Street Journal reporter who was arrested for espionage. Why is this such a unique and unprecedented? I mean, we know Putin is a menace from hell, but why is this particular situation so shocking? Well, because there hasn't been a reporter accused of espionage since the Cold War. And even in the Cold War, it was really rare, even under Stalin. I mean, they were very, very tight measure, security measures on reporters, but they weren't imprisoned. I mean, there was the case, there was a case in the 80s, but it's just unheard of. And it just sets a precedent that is just unacceptable. And I think that's why Biden has to be a lot tougher than he's been. Do you think picking a guy who works for Rupert Murdoch was deliberate or an accidental just coincidence? Oh, I don't think he cares. I don't think Putin sees any difference between Murdoch and anybody else, right? I mean, it's the Wall Street Journal. Could have been the New York Times, but the Wall Street Journal just happened to be on hand at the time. When you were a foreign correspondent for the New York Times in Moscow in the 90s, was there any fear that something like this would happen or did it seem like a relic from another era? No. I mean, when you went to the boonies, if you went to sort of very, very remote places, they were still sort of in Soviet mode. So you could be detained very politely by the local authorities because they wanted to know what you were doing. But it was harmless in those days. And we're worried about being kidnapped by Muslim extremists, not by the government. So, yeah, this is just this is beyond the pale. These sort of steady, slow, courteous negotiations don't seem to be going anywhere because every time they release someone, they pick someone else. I think you want to know who I think we should kidnap. Well, yeah. In your story, you posit that an oligarch just isn't going to cut it. So <laughs> what's our best reprisal? Well, no, no one, because the problem with Putin is he doesn't care about anybody, right? So you can take an oligarch and we're doing him a favor. We could frog march him into a squad car and he'd be cheering because he hates all those guys because he made them rich and they get to live in Positano and not have to deal with his war. So it's very few people. So I've narrowed it down to family members. And I'm thinking that the best one would be a woman called Alina Kabayeva, who is a twofer. She's an Olympic gymnast, rhythmic gymnast, one of the most famous athletes in Russia. And she's apparently Putin's mistress and the mother of four of his children. Now, if we could take her into custody, I think that then we would get his attention. Putin, by the way, having an affair with her makes it all the more plausible. And isn't she in Geneva or something? Where is she right now? She's somewhere in Switzerland. But we have that's what we have intelligence for is to find her and track her down. I have no sympathy. There's no innocent bystanders anymore. If you can take a Wall Street Journal reporter, I say, go for it. Go for the gymnast. I mean, this is a bit facetious, obviously, but in the good old days of the Cold War, people did kidnap each other all the time. We just probably need some advice from the Israelis. Alessandra, has a situation like this ever happened before? Glad you asked. In the 80s, when there was the sort of kidnapping hostage crisis in Lebanon, three Russian diplomats were kidnapped. And the story is that what happened was that the Russians responded by kidnapping the, a close relative of the leading Muslim imam, 
castrating him, sending the parts back to the imam, and then shooting him on video. And nobody can confirm this story. The Russians have never confirmed it. But on the other hand, no other Russians were kidnapped. And dozens and dozens of Western diplomats and journalists and stuff were kidnapped in that period, in those 10 years. So the Russians know this game, and it's perhaps time to give them a taste of their own medicine. All right. Now, as the Biden administration mulls this over, we still have the matter of Evan Gershkovich, who is imprisoned in Russia. What do you think his situation looks like right now? And does he have any hope of coming home? He has hope, but not right away. And who knows what kind of trades they're going to extract. If the war gets worse, the Russians are going to be less and less inclined to do us any favors, and they can hold him as a pawn for as long as they like. And everybody's helpless to do anything about it. That's why I believe that you have to take extra measures. I know it sounds like Tom Clancy, but I'm just sick of it. While we have you, I was just thinking, the last time you were on, we were talking about Macron's problems on the home front, and he seems to have, speaking of the war and diplomacy, had a busy week. What's your take on his situation this week after going to China and his roles for... Well, I think when you're in trouble in France, you go to Gaulle, full to Gaulle. And de Gaulle was always, was still revered in France by almost everybody, was always convinced that France was a superpower of its own and shouldn't be subservient to anybody. And so he's had so much trouble at home that the one thing he can do is strike an allegiance, however fragile and superficial, with the Chinese, just to sort of distract people at home and sort of say, we still are a superpower, we're a great power, and the Chinese listen to us. I don't know if it'll help him, but I think it's a de Gaulle move. All right, more to be discussed. Okay, guys. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I like the realpolitik of it all. Yes, indeed. It's nice to see somebody getting tough with Putin. Too bad it's nobody in the Biden administration. Anyway, fingers crossed that that situation will improve, although I have to say it's not feeling especially optimistic at the moment. But we have more optimistic things in store, courtesy of George Hahn. George Hahn has got a great new column we're debuting this week called Design for Living. And I'm excited about this column. It's sort of like how to live a more well-designed life, a little more stylish life, right? I'm into it. He's a humorist. He's an entertainer. He's a writer. He's a podcaster. He's a longtime New Yorker. And he's an impresario of the Upper West Side. Welcome, George. Good to be here. Thank you, Ashley. And hello, Michael. Okay. Ciao. <laughs> George, you have a great column for us in this week's issue, and it's called Rule of Three. First of all, what is the Rule of Three? Well, the Rule of Three was actually born from my thinking and also Nathan's, the editor, Nathan King, and the idea of being, what are three things we can sort of expand about in terms of men's wear, men's lifestyle, being better men. It's a lot. One of the things you get to this week is the thrill of the hunt for looking for a piece of clothing that you may have been inspired by. In this case, a herringbone jacket that Robert Redford wears in Three Days of the Condor and how you track that down. Can you just tell us about that? Oh, yeah. I had long wanted a tweed. I wanted a Harris tweed, really. And Harris tweeds aren't cheap, as anybody who's ever shopped for one knows. And for those who don't know, a Harris tweed is from Scotland. It's a beautiful weave of tweed and really kind of a gold standard, if you will. Anyway, I love costume in movies, particularly glamorous men's costume. And I thought, not just me, thought Robert Redford looked iconic in that movie. And one of his looks is a tweed, herringbone tweed jacket, blazer, whatever, with jeans. They were boot cut in the movie, not my flavor. And a scarf. And it just looks so very effortless. This was a guy who was a literary person, his character. I wanted that jacket. I wanted something like it. So I searched for it on eBay and that was 
the place to find it. It's good to hear that because a lot of people think, eh, I'm going to buy something on eBay. It's going to be sketchy and smelly and full of moth holes. People asked me before, like, can you really? Yeah, you can buy fantastic stuff on eBay that comes out of people's wardrobes and it's better than new, right? It never occurred to me until I saw someone post about it years ago. I don't even remember who on Twitter. And I thought, on eBay? Clothing? Really? And then I looked and was kind of blown away at some of the options. And I talk about it in the piece, the idea of finding it. I had, in this case, something very specific in mind. I wasn't just browsing. And I put in my search words, they were probably Harris Tweed, Herringbone, Jacket, 38 Regular. And that's what eventually came up. Glorious. And you got to tailor the hell out of it. A jacket, in this case. With a jacket, the one mandate off the peg is that it must fit in the shoulders. That's very hard to fix, even for the most gifted of tailors. But if it fits in the shoulders, pretty much everything else can be tweaked to really make it your own. Now, George, you also sound off on the morning ritual of coffee. As you write in the story, you like your coffee dark, rich, and bitchy. Talk us through this process. (laughs) That is not you, George. You're delightful, sweet, and fun. But tell us about your morning coffee ritual and why you are so loyal to this. Because Michael and I have opinions as well. We're really going to get into it here. Good. I love it. I can't start a day without it. Don't ask me to try and function without it. Like the American Express card, I don't leave home without it, i.e. fueled by it. Started when I was in college with coffee, as it did with a lot of people, I'm sure. And then when I quit drinking, I became a real sort of coffee snob and explored. My ritual is with the Chemex. Not for everybody. It's super analog. It's a pour over situation. It takes time. Well, more time than I think many modern digital people, digital natives might be willing to endure. And I like a dark roast. I like those shiny beans. I don't know if it has anything to do with what makes a better roast or whatever, but typically in my experience, when the beans are of those dark, shiny variety, as you said, Ashley, or as I wrote, dark, rich, and bitchy, yeah, that's my jam. You like a highly shellacked bean. I do. That's a great word for it. But point being, I, as I said, cannot leave the house unless I'm heavily fueled by it. I like hearing it because I don't understand people who can... I mean, I make my morning coffee at home with a mocha master. Those are great. Those are great. But I don't understand people who can wake up, take a shower, get dressed, and then get on the subway. And then as they get to the office, then they buy their coffee. You've been up for an hour and a half, two hours. I don't know how you can do that. No, or without it. George, one of the great things you have is in your rule of three, you you make recommendations at the end of every column. And this week you speak about the films of, for instance, watching some great French films by the director of of one of which is B. Melville, which I love because he's got two of my favorite movies, Le Samurai and Bob Le Flambeur. Gun to the head. You got to pick one of those. Which one, which one do you go for? One of those two or which one of his? My top of the list for his would be a Samurai. I would be with you. You and I would be at that screening together. My number two or the competition is Le Cirque Rouge, the red circle. I recommended that last year on the show during lockdown. It's so good. And I can't remember how I got into the films of Jean-Pierre Melville, but I love these. The men are brooding, not terribly complicated, not a ton of dialogue. The femme fatales, the women. Well, there's generally not a lot of dialogue in any of them. Well, yeah, you look at Le Samurai, there's like no dialogue in it. Barely. I mean, he makes John Wick look really talky. Yeah, the bird gets more dialogue. Right. The bird and the cigarettes. It does make me want to smoke, although I've quit for a while now. And Melville, I think also kind of, I think he funded his own movies too. I think he was fueled by his own financing and studio and whatnot, which also impresses me. 
Okay, George, before we let you go, we have to gossip a little bit. You write Please. in your you write in your fantastic column about your views on some of the more self-serious members of the men's fashion community, which as a fashion industry survivor myself, I absolutely love this because it's true. I mean, this universe that you are certainly a part of, but probably the most fun part as far as Michael and I are concerned, these guys take themselves so seriously. They buy watches and cars and clothing, like as you say, quote, like it's a blood sport with all of the flaunting and none of the joy. Has this been bothering you for a while now or did you get set off by going to a bad dinner and having a deadly seatmate? I think I was tuned into that from the beginning when this stuff came onto my radar in the digital sense, when blogs were a thing and then Instagram and the menswear hashtag became a thing. These guys were so serious and it's like, this stuff is fun. This is, we're talking about watches and shoes and stuff we wear, suits, jeans, shirts, whatever it may be. Is anybody having any fun here? It really is like a blood sport. And these guys, look at the pictures of them. And I see them on Instagram. Not a lot of laughter, not a lot of joy or mirth or whimsy happening here. And it's like, this is me wearing Congratulations. What else can you do? Is that it? Is that the one trick? Because wow, I'm bored. So yeah, it's a real serious, serious slice of the industry. And I don't want to say puts me off. I would say that it amuses me. Like, you guys, it's close. Let's have a little fun here. Come on. George, thank you so much. We will talk to you again very soon. We love your column. We love you. And have a fabulous weekend. Thank you so much, Ashley. And thank you, Michael. It's such a pleasure to be with you guys. Great to see you, George. And by the way, I would just say the herringbone, then his look in all the president's men with the corduroy jacket. That's your next one. We'll hold it for that. Hold your thoughts. We'll see you next time, George. Thank you, George. We've learned a lot here. Learned a lot, and I'm glad I've gotten them already thinking about Robert Redford in All the President's Men. But, you know, who else always teaches us a lot, Ashley, is our good pal, Christine Mulkey, right? We love Christine. She's a former editor for the New York Times and Bon Appetit magazine, and now she is one of our fantastic food writers, not only writing about food and travel, but she also reviews cookbooks for us, and she's just also a really fun person to have coffee, dinner, or drinks with. We love her to pieces, we love her cooking, and we love her take on Kyoto, which she shares in this week's issue. Welcome, Christine Mulkey. Okay, well... We have Christine Mulkey here. Now, she is reporting to us live from her mother's dining room in Wisconsin, but not very long ago, she was in Kyoto for the first time since Japan has reopened itself to travelers, and she is here to give us a serious case of FOMO. Welcome, Christine. Hi. So great to be here in my mom's dining room. What part of Wisconsin are we getting you from right now? I'm actually in Racine. Oh, and I'm right down the block from a Frank Lloyd Wright house that I just saw for sale on Dezine or one of those real estate P-O-R-N sites that I follow. So I'm going to go check that out later. Okay, Christine, you last visited Japan in February of 2020. So in other words, weeks before lockdown. Tell us about your experience then. I mean, it was heaven. You could literally dance in the streets. You could go to temples. Some of the temples were pretty much the only people there. Others, there were still a lot of tourists. They were really, people were leaving or they weren't coming. They were really cracking down on people coming from China. You had to sign something upon check-in stating that you hadn't been there in the last 10 days. So the result was just not the rush that they had been complaining about in Kyoto to that date. And what took you back this time? I mean, I just... Had to go. The beauty, the exquisiteness. Late February is such a special, quiet moment. It's like you have the plum blossoms, but not the cherry blossoms. So it feels like a secret. And as a New Yorker, to have anything sort of lovely and historical and profound 
to yourself is worth getting on a 13, 14 hour flight for. Now, you know the city intimately and in your story, you have all of these fantastic ideas of where we should stay and where we should eat and where we should go and what we should buy. But you also mentioned that the city feels like it has been reclaimed a bit by the locals in contrast with previous visits that you've had there. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I sort of likened it to the pandemic. You had the feeling where you actually could go to Soho on a Saturday and not have to like wait in line to get around the big sculpture on Prince Street or whatever. And you were seeing locals shopping at Nishiki Market in the morning as opposed to, again, being completely unable to get to the booths, get anywhere close to the vendors because there's just this like stream of tourists. It was like being on the high line on a Saturday. But on this trip, you really felt that people Locals were shopping, they were eating, they were going to places that they maybe hadn't gone to for a while. Basically, Japan, in advance of the Olympics, had a really great tourism campaign, and it was too successful. (laughs) So I think they were really happy to hit reset. When they hit reset, the locals that they, you talk about in your story, they sort of like reclaim the streets a little bit and sort of set the rules again for any tourists who are going to come in? Yeah, they actually started sort of a Kyoto tourism agency, and they started doing things like when you walk into Nishiki Market, if you want to use the Wi-Fi, you click this QR code. But in order to get through to the Wi-Fi, you have to look at these sort of rules or suggestions, things like don't eat while walking, which the Japanese can't stand, which was very hard for me. Please don't just take pictures of the food. Be polite, be respectful, keep it moving. So they had these suggestions. And of course, because it's Japanese, it's very polite. And you're like, oh, well, if you put it that way, yes, I will try to be more respectful. And they're also encouraging people to really spend more time there instead of just bombing in for one or two or three nights and like hitting all of the places, but to really sink in for a week if you can. And one of the most populous temples there, the Buddhist monk in charge of it, is now offering quiet, smaller nighttime visits where you get to see it by candlelight and really experience it firsthand. So I think they're trying to like close the aperture a little bit more. And we'll see if that works. <laughs> All right, Christine, brass tacks here. Where should we stay on our next visit to Kyoto? Okay, well, I think your first night you should stay at the Amon, which opened in fall of 2019, womp womp, because it's sort of, it's a great initiation into the Ryokan experience, but you're not just suddenly on the floor being waited on constantly. It's a really beautiful location. It's also just a little bit outside of the city, so you feel like you're in the country for those who think, oh, I really want to go to a countryside Ryokan, but I don't have time because I only da 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 That's your country hit. And then you should stay at either. And this is subject to great debate for those who've been there, the Tawaraya or the Hiragiya. They're genuinely across the street from one another. And the joke is that whichever one you stay at first, you feel most partial to. And I can now attest to that. What is the Ryokan experience like for those of us who've never done it? It's like being in the waiting room of heaven. (laughs) You take off your shoes, you put on the robe, you have an attendant, you have a room attendant who brings you tea, who sets up your breakfast in the morning. You're sleeping on this tatami mat. So it's extremely intimate and it's extremely exquisite. Every detail has been thought through for hundreds of years. I mean, just eating Japanese breakfast every morning is a reason to go to Japan. At the Hiragiya, which has been in operation for over 150 years, some of those plates and dishes and lacquer bowls have been there since then. So it really is, it doesn't feel like eating inside a museum. It's like a living museum. On that subject of heaven and eating, is there a restaurant that you still haven't gotten out of your mind or two that you would choose for us? Well, it was really tricky, I have to say, on this trip. As I say in the story, Japan is just like, it is 
on. Everything is booked. So unless you're really booking six to eight weeks ahead or you have a local who can book for you, you do kind of have to catch as catch can. I had a really incredible meal. I was finally able to bully my way into Monk, which only has 14 seats. And it's sort of playing on the tasting menu with local ingredients, but it culminates in a pizza, a really exquisite pizza. And the pizza that I had, you get half a pizza at the end of the meal. And I was with someone who doesn't eat gluten. So good for me. That means I get a whole pizza, right? So half of it was this fresh nori pesto, which I never thought about nori as fresh, to be honest. I'm embarrassed to say. And the other half, I had these like tiny, tiny baby sardines with a little bit of lemon zest and mozzarella. So I can't stop thinking about that. All right. And there's also another culinary experience happening in Kyoto right now, which is certainly worth a visit, except unfortunately, we can't even get a table. Your friend Renee Redzepi has a Noma pop-up happening right now. You spoke with him about it. What is on docket there? I mean, also a waiting room of heaven, but located in the Ace Hotel, so slightly different. They've been planning this for two years and they've had people there sourcing, working with ceramicists to make plates, working with tea cultivators to grow things for them, researching, drying things, dehydrating things, fermenting things for over a year. I mean, just the cherry blossom section alone, what they're doing with them or to see what they're doing with foraged roots and leaves. So they're creating a really, really beautiful experience. Unfortunately, it only goes through mid-May and it started after I got there. So I got the behind the scenes and it was really fun. They were transforming this restaurant, which is going to be a steakhouse for the American chef Naomi Pomeroy into a truly Japanese experience. And they had convinced local tatami makers to dye their tatami mats, which they don't do, and to hang them on the wall, which they don't do. So there's a lot of interfacing between the two cultures. And I really, really wish that I could be there because what I saw in the kitchen and on the walls is just out of the park. When you're craving a Japanese food fix here in New York City, is there a place that you seek out that sort of like fills that nothing compares and nothing can replace Kyoto, but like when you want that taste of it, where would you go? Sure. I mean, we're so lucky in New York to have so many great places. And there's also a really fascinating evolution that's happening in Greenpoint. So I go to 50 Norman, which is this wonderful building. They have like this dashi place where you can also get food. I mean, there's a whole evolution happening there. And also Okonomi, which is a wonderful place that serves Japanese breakfast, also in Brooklyn, just opened a market in February. But for the quickest and most convenient to Chelsea hit, I go to Kettle Tea on the Bowery, and it's part of this little shipping container on Bowery and Jones, and they get incredible tea. And Zach, the owner, is the kind of person who will go to Kyoto and try to convince the soba dealer to sell to him every year for six years until they finally relent. And so when you have a cup of that soba sitting at this little bar, but what I love that's so Japanese is every detail is considered, right? The coaster is beautiful. It's on the perfect angle. The glass is beautiful. Everything is just like, that's the thing about Kyoto. It's so subtle and every detail has been refined for hundreds of years. So you really have to just stop what you're doing and pay attention, which is the real gift of Kyoto. That's fantastic. I know where I'm going this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I'll email you other tips. Not Kyoto, but... Well, Kettle also has a flagship in Greenpoint that's even more Japanese-y. All right. Lots of ideas. Christine Mulkey, thank you so much not only for this, but for all of your great stories and airmail. We will be back in a few weeks to talk about the best spring cookbooks. Always be cooking. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. (laughs) Enjoy Wisconsin. I will. Have you been to Japan, Ashley? No, I've never been to Japan, but I feel like I've read enough Pico Iyer that I have at least had some sort of a vicarious experience. 
Yeah, and I have never been. And once again, I get inspiration from people who have gone there. So moving it higher up on the list of places to go soon. Michael, Steve Jobs went once a year for the aesthetics. See, there you go. We would be different people if we went to Japan once a year. I'm pretty sure of it. Our heart rates would probably be lower. Mm-hmm. I feel, yeah. We should be doing this as like a spa retreat, like morning meeting offsite. Why not? You'll find me in the waiting room for heaven. That would be my auto reply set on my email. I'm in the waiting room for heaven right now, so I might be slightly delayed in getting back to you. <laughs> That's a great out of office. It might scare people. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it probably would. It sounds a little bit dark, but anyway. <laughs> All right, Michael, it's the weekend. It is spring. We're tempted to stop listening right now and get outside, but we do have a couple of things to discuss. First up. Succession. Yeah. Just when I thought succession was going to be kind of a ho-hum season with a lot of hateful characters, mm, something interesting happened and now I'm hooked again. Yeah. Boy, that episode, the episode, right? Everyone's kind of seen it, right? Spoilers ahead. Okay, Michael, was this a coup? Was this a feat of great television or what? Yeah, all I'll say is, to spare spoilers, we'll be kind to our listeners, but all I'll say is, maybe we should have seen it coming. There's a terrific moment early in the previous episode where Logan and his body man slip out of his birthday party, and there they are sitting in a diner at the, on the Upper East Side, and Logan just says, you're my best pal. And then, do you think there's anything after all this? Which is, just think, boy, looking back, that's just a guy who's preparing knows maybe something is coming down the road. So when I replayed that moment in my mind, but I think where does it go from here? I think my hunch is maybe Kendall's going to go off the rails again and headed for some sort of problems. But I keep thinking about his line from an earlier episode where he says to Logan, I'll be broken when you die. But boy, if I can't imagine the tune in for episode four won't be sky high based on what happened this week. Much to discuss. Much to discuss. All right, Michael. Okay. Succession aside, do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? Well, one thing, this is not succession-esque, but I've been watching. I'd love to know what listeners think of this because the newest incarnation of Great Expectations, the Dickens masterpiece, which is now on Hulu. Have you seen it, Ashley? No, I have not. Okay. The highlight of this incarnation, it comes to us from the creator of Peaky Blinders. So it's got a whole different art direction, a whole it's shot a lot through a lot of blue light on this thing. The highlight for me is the casting of Olivia Coleman as Miss Havisham. So I have kind of tuned in for that. I've gotten two episodes in and I'm not sure I'm fully endorsing it, but if you want to see some great work by Coleman, uh, and if you've missed seeing her sort of dominating something since she left the crown, maybe tune in for this. It's called Great Expectations and it's on Hulu. Into it. And you, my dear? Well, we have another season of The Other Two coming up on HBO on May 4th. Have you seen this show? I have not, but I keep hearing wonderful things about it. It's very funny. Now is the moment to watch the first few seasons because, as I mentioned, May 4th, the third season is going to be premiering on HBO Max. But it's a comedy. It was created by Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider. And it follows these two millennial siblings who are trying to forge their own way in the world as their 13-year-old brother shoots to overnight fame, courtesy of the internet. And it's very funny. The siblings in question are an aspiring actor named Carrie, who's played by Drew Tarver, and his sister Brooke, who's played by Helene York. And she was a former professional dancer. And then the young kid in it is really great too but it also stars molly shannon who is the mother of these three siblings and she's very funny too so anyway it's a great show a lot of really funny comedic actors catch up on those first two seasons now before the third one hits it is called the other two on hbo max we wish you all a wonderful weekend thank you so much for joining us michael will you please read us out absolutely but first we want to thank our sponsor this week chanel
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.